The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Bloomberg Sound Off. The insiders, the influencers, the insights. We continue to open this economy slowly, but it's coming back. I want to know what the theme is going to be for Republicans. I can't imagine a more important person in Washington right now than Senator Joe Manchin. Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. Live from Washington, D.C., welcome to Monday. Financial regulators assemble in the Oval Office to talk about financial risks facing America. We will talk about it as we learn a bit more about what was on the agenda straight ahead with Bloomberg White House correspondent Josh Wingrove, ahead of the Fed chair's testimony tomorrow. We'll also talk about that, comments from Powell, and we'll hear later this hour from Brian Morgenstern, former White House Deputy Press Secretary, former Treasury Department official, as we get a sense of what went on today in the Beltway and look ahead to tomorrow. First, though, we check on the markets. Here's Doug Christen. Hey, Joe. So the reopening trade was in high gear today, and that helped the equity market recover from the slump that we had in the Friday session. Energy, financial, industrial names leading the S&P up today by 1.4%. Early in the day, we heard from St. Louis Fed Bank President Jim Bullard, and he was saying the American economy is booming, and it's on a path to recover more than it lost during the pandemic. And that shouldn't be a big surprise if I were to say, well, as a result of those remarks, Long-term interest rates moved higher today. Ten-year Treasury last quoted in New York just under 1.49%. We had the Dow gaining about 1.8%. NASDAQ composite up just 8 tenths of 1%. A lot of weakness in Bitcoin, uh, down about 10% in the New York session. This was after Beijing overnight ordered the Chinese payment platform Alipay and a number of other uh, domestic banks in China not to provide services linked to trading in virtual currencies. Right now I'm looking at Bitcoin 32,530. I'm Doug Krisner and that is your Bloomberg Business Flash. Thank you, Doug. I'm Joe Matthew in Washington and we thank you for spending part of your Monday with us on Bloomberg Radio. Welcome to Sound On. White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki says it was a routine meeting. That was the pitch before they went behind closed doors. It was also, though, President Biden's today first meeting with Fed Chair Jay Powell as the heads of the financial regulatory agencies, including Treasury, the SEC and others gathered in the Oval to talk about some of the risks facing the financial system. Here's how the press secretary framed this before they met. The president's view is this is a routine meeting with financial regulators to get an update on uh, management of the economy uh, and uh, a range and making credit accessible to people across the country. Climate change, access to capital, that was Saki again before the meeting. We're joined afterwards now, having gotten a readout on what was discussed to some extent by Bloomberg White House correspondent Josh Wingrove. Josh, what are we learning? Is it as simple as that? Yeah, it's always to some extent, isn't it, with these readouts? A little bit of reading between the lines. Uh, sure. you know, they're really trying to downplay sort of any particular reason for it. What the readout tells us is they discussed how to build on the turnaround. They uh, talked about you know how to strengthen the system. They said they talked about access to credit, including for potential homeowners, which is a bit of a slight turn of the screw beyond what Jen Psaki had said, yeah. climate risk, that sort of thing. One thing we asked about in the briefing is whether they would discuss other subjects like cryptocurrency. She 
said that she didn't know if that was on the agenda, but th- th- didn't expect it. I mean, broadly, they really tried to you know pour water on any significance of this. And even when we asked, hey, what does Joe Biden think about Jay Powell? Uh, she kind of punted on that one, too. Yeah. We, can, we can get a, much of an answer on that one. So right now, they did not speak. I'm, I'm calling from the tiny, extremely modest uh, Bloomberg booth in the White House. And uh, we've been, I've been here all day, and I haven't caught a peep of Powell, of Yellen, of Gensler, of any of these folks who were in this meeting. They, they kept them under lock and key. Yeah, no stake out in the driveway. I don't know if that was expected, but it would have been nice to hear a little bit more considering the backdrop uh, for this meeting. We're in the throes of this debate over infrastructure. Uh, The markets are wavering on worries about inflation. We've got an economic recovery that may or may not be going in the direction that the White House wants it to go. But so was was this a, a getting to know you kind of meeting or do we assume all of this was discussed? I mean, I think there was a factor on that. It came, though, on a day when the, the Dwight has begun sort of invoking the Fed uh, in defending its economic plan and its push for that new infrastructure package, which, as you know, is sort of twisting around the flagpole in Congress one way or another. Yeah. Uh, I think, like, in particular, uh, Jared Bernstein, one of Biden's economic advisors, really downplayed those inflation risks this morning. He was on CNBC saying, look, runaway inflation is a case where inflation is, you know, high and then higher the next year and higher the next year. He thinks that they're expecting, of course, higher inflation in 2021, but falling back down in 2022. He's sort of saying the Fed uh, is sort of of the same view with their recent comments. Uh, you know, we obviously have been asking for quite some time, you know, when is Joe Biden going to speak to Jay Powell? And of course, this is one of these situations where Yellen, her appointment as Treasury Secretary kind of gives Biden a little bit of cover fire because in the past they've said, well, he doesn't need to speak to Powell. He's got Yellen, who's kind of, a, you know, the, the wink, wink there being like she's almost a two for one, right? <laughs> Former Fed chair, now Treasury Secretary. Well, with that said, uh, now that we have a look at the testimony for tomorrow, mm-hmm. uh, does this look market moving to you? Is there anything at odds with what's been said uh, in terms of the, the direction of inflation and interest rates from the Fed? by way of that podium in the White House briefing room. They're not the same agency, but they need to kind of speak the same language. Well, I mean, I I definitely don't make a habit of trying to predict what will be market moving or not. But I do think that the White House has seen this steady drumbeat of stuff that they think is supporting their case that this isn't a runaway train on inflation, for instance, that this recovery is is gaining steam and not sort of petering out, leveling off in a way that they're worried about. They're seeing some of the transitory effects work themselves through. For instance, they hinted that they would do something about lumber bottlenecks, but we've seen, you know, the, the crunch on lumber has eased off quite a bit, and now you don't hear boo from uh, from the White House about it. So I, I think I think broadly speaking, the White House is, is in a place where they think that their plan is working and they're trying to sort of rally this all together, wrap it up and use it as an argument for those infrastructure talks. Remember, we are really up in the air on those right now. We mm-hmm. They're threatening reconciliation. It's not clear that the votes are there for that. Certainly not at $6 trillion, it seems. And they're pumping the brakes throughout the day on this bipartisan thing that 21 senators have signed on to doesn't really seem to be quite over the line for Joe Biden. So we'll see where that goes. They want something in, you know, sooner than a few weeks is how Saki phrased it today. Yeah, that briefing was quite a winding road today. Uh, Bloomberg White House correspondent (laughs) Josh Wingrove back with us to make sense of it all. We thank you, Josh. Maybe see you back there at the White House soon. Let's bring in Brian Morgenstern, general counsel at Wentworth Management Service, former White House deputy press secretary in the Trump administration, a former Treasury Department official. Brian, it's great to have you. Hey, We're talking a lot of, lot of moving parts here uh, with regard to this meeting, with regard to interest rates and the recovery. Jay Powell talking about the central bank's 2% target 
once supply imbalances resolve. Do you believe that the inflation we're seeing is, in fact, temporary, transitory, as the Fed says? Well, we certainly hope uh, that that's the case for the American people. But I have to say that the economy pre-COVID was extremely strong with the Trump administration's policies of tax cuts, deregulation, improved trade deals, and the unemployment situation, of course, was historically good. Uh, And so the fundamentals were there. Now that the Operation Warp Speed vaccines are out in the market and the economies across the country are opening, we're seeing that strength come back into play, which means that we don't need trillions and trillions of dollars to continue being pumped into the economy. We don't necessarily need free money uh, and zero interest rates forever. We can start to return to a state of normalcy. If we don't do that, if we have all this extra cash being printed, if we have uh, unnecessarily low rates for an extended period of time, that fear really you know, does kind of come into play. And that's why you've see, seen the I word, inflation, talked about so frequently uh, in recent weeks. The, the hope is that it is temporary, that it will go away. But certainly with the policy choices the Biden administration is making, uh, if it goes away, that would be in spite of them, not because of them. They are certainly uh, taking some risks here uh, with just uh, putting too much uh, unnecessary you know, money into the market. They're calling relief that really isn't uh, needed at this point anymore. Just sound financial policies, relying on the fundamentals, getting the economy open, getting kids back in school and parents back to work. That's really what's going to get things uh, on a stronger path. The readout from the White House uh, on the meeting today with financial uh agency leaders, the financial uh, regulatory agencies, they further indicated, it says that financial risks are being mitigated by robust capital and liquidity levels in the banking system and healthy household balance sheets stemming from fiscal support and the ongoing economic recovery. Getting back to my question, though, how much of that is transitory? If you pull back, for instance, I don't know what you're referring to completely of the stimulus or, or the move uh, to get more money for infrastructure. But if you pulled that back, is what you're saying inflation will come back as well? No, I'm saying that they are uh, that the value of a dollar can be manipulated if there's too much money being put out into the market. Look, when when COVID, uh, when we had tremendous uncertainty because of COVID, that was uh, when it was necessary to give people, for example, increased uh, unemployment benefits. It was necessary to do the checks in the mail, those economic impact payments. Sure. It was necessary to, to, to do certain measures like that to provide to people with temporary liquidity to get through the uncertainty. The uncertainty isn't there anymore now that the economies are opening, now that the vaccines are available, now that we understand much better today uh, what, what we're dealing with than we did a year ago. And so the fact that we're still uh, in, in places paying people more to stay home than they would earn at work, the fact that we are still looking at putting a tremendous amount of public fisc resources into the economy when the private sector can be strong. So should the Fed pull back on bond purchases? I'm just trying to get a sense of what should change at this point uh, from your perspective. So the Fed could be, uh, I guess, a little less dovish. <laughs> they could signal. I think they've started to signal that they're thinking about increasing rates a little bit. They sure did last could week. Potentially, yeah. Right. They, they could potentially uh, ease up on the bond purchases. But really, you know, treating the economy as though it is strong, it is in a state of recovery. We have a brighter future so that the Fed's 
these these measures taken by the Fed are less necessary, and they will become less necessary in the weeks and months to come. I think that would be a signal that's uh, really strong, that the private sector is going to be able to stand on its own two feet and that it doesn't need so much assistance. We're talking with Brian Morgenstern, General Counsel, Wentworth Management Service, former White House Deputy Press Secretary and former Treasury Department official. It's a long business card here, Brian, and I know you can speak to a lot of these uh, issues. When we prepare to hear from Jay Powell tomorrow, do you want to hear then in our remaining moment plans to start tightening once again, to start tapering and tightening? I, I think what we need to see from Chairman Powell is throughout the pandemic, he's been a little bit of a uh, pessimist. I think he's been a little bit too uh, harsh. He's been a little bit too much re- relying on his own powers uh, in, uh, in, in his ability to keep the, the economy strong. I think he needs to acknowledge that it's time for the Fed to step back a little bit. It's time for them to recognize how strong our economy is and that the measures he has taken are much less necessary today than they are uh, th- th- than they will be into into the future. I think that's sort of a message the Fed is going to start to uh, pull back. Obviously, they can make changes as they see new data on a regular sure. basis. They always do. But it's time for the economy to stand on its own two feet. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Bloomberg Sound On on Bloomberg Radio. It was one of the most read stories today on the terminal. The Supreme Court ruling against the NCAA in what was an antitrust case that will now allow member schools to provide more benefits to student players as opposed to a whole bunch of outright cash. And we're joined to talk about it by Eric Mitchell, the founder and CEO of Life Flip Media, a sports agent who also played a little basketball himself at Sacramento State. Welcome, Eric, to Sound On. Hey, thanks, Joe. Thanks for having me. To be clear, this ruling lifts some compensation limits for student players, but it does not mean they're about to score multi-million dollar contracts here, right? What does it give them? It gives the athletes finally some freedom and some compensation for their likeness being used. You know, this all stems. One of the players involved is a former West Virginia football player whose image was used and thought he should get some compensation for that. But the NCAA, which we've all known for years and is actually called out by a couple justices, they don't seem to follow those rules and understand that these student athletes, they're not all going to go on to the pros. And if you're going to use their likeness, they should be compensated for it. I mean, you're right. It's not going to lead to millions of dollars or even thousands of dollars, but at least these athletes will be taken care of when their likeness is being used. I think it's really going to affect our women's sports more than our men's sports. Seth Waxman is an attorney for the uh, NCAA. To go back to the beginning here, this was part of his argument before the Supreme Court, just to give us a sense of how the other side is arguing this. For more than 100 years, the distinct character of college sports has been that it's played by students who are amateurs, which is to say that they are not paid for their play. 
Maintaining that distinct character is both pro-competitive because it differentiates the NCAA's product from professional sports and can be achieved only through agreement. Merrick, there's a lot of money on the line here. Would this, in fact, make the, the league less competitive? I don't think it would make it less competitive. I think it would make well, – how do I put this in Kyla? It'll make the board of directors of college basketball – or not college basketball, but college period NCAA yeah. – have to like share some of the money because you've got to keep in mind the head of the NCAA is making a pretty penny. And if you look down the breakdown, it's all going back. I mean, I know that the decision isn't affecting the likeness quite yet. But if you look at it from, say, we go back to March Madness and we saw the disparity between men's basketball, women's basketball – when you break that down, just think of the money. Just we'll just pick on this sport, just on on basketball alone. Mm-hmm. College college sports alone spends over seventy percent of the money goes to men's sport. Well, only thirty percent goes to women's sports. Where's the rest of that money going, and why is it being so held out on one or the other? That this all comes down, and I think Justice Kavanaugh put it best when he was talking about the antitrust and how college, you know, NCAA has just danced around this for years. And now they're being called out by their athletes. And yes, in the 50s and 60s, you're right. Athletes could survive off of you know their scholarships. But now it's different. They're being used by all these big brands in these commercials. Their likenesses are on side of arenas and stadiums. You're seeing it all over. You go by a big college, you're seeing athletes everywhere being used. These these athletes deserve to be paid. This, you're going to use their likeness. You got to pay. It's not part of just showing up to college. Hey, use my photo. But you got to pay these folks to do this. They're working yeah. really, really hard. I mean, and how does it? How do they go trial for the basketball team, US Team USA? And they're playing with the likes of the great Dame Lillard or Kevin Durant, and they're not getting paid like either one of those. They should earn a little bit of dollars for doing that. And I think this is where the Supreme Court sees eye to eyes with these student athletes. Sure. Have you been exposed to some of the under the table money that we hear stories about Eric, where schools through boosters or other venues are getting money or cars or any other kinds of perks to, to student athletes before they have a chance to sign any kind of uh, big contract here. It makes people wonder where it's coming from. I personally have not. Uh, I, I was lucky to get the scholarship that I even received, but I am at what we do currently and what I, you know, working with athletes currently. I have heard all of the stories. I, I work with athletes that have had, dealt with this, where people showed up to you know, almost encourage them to go to their university. Yeah. You know, mom's right. All of a sudden, approved for a new lease on a car. I, it's it just these stories. I hear them all the time from folks that have you know won championships. They're sitting here telling me what they were almost, you know, they turned it down, but at the same time, what they were offered. People showing up in cars. Oh, we'll take your whole family to Cancun. Right. I mean, these are a crazy, just go to Disney. And well, how do you explain it? I remember one of my athletes told me, my mom goes, well, how am I supposed to explain? I'm working three jobs and all of a sudden we're staying at the finest hotel at Disney World (laughs) and all of my kids are here. How are we supposed to explain this to the tax man and all my friends who are going to see us here? Well, so, Eric, does that end now? Does that kind of behavior change? (laughs) He's laughing. I don't think think it'll end. I I, I mean, if you look at the competitive nature of college football itself, I don't think it'll end. Uh, I think it still goes on, and it will go on to get the best athlete. I mean, nevertheless, who's getting paid? But I I still think that there's going to be out there. Boosters are going to want these top, especially now we're going to have college football 
back in its prime is back in 2021 with a full se- with a full season and everybody on there. Top 25 will have real top 25 teams. You're going to see those top teams want to win. That means they're going to go do what they need to do. That's it's right. The, I don't agree with it, and I know you don't agree with it, but it, it happens. And welcome to Bloomberg Sound On. I'm Joe Matthew in Washington as we continue the conversation about Again, one of our most read stories of the day on the terminal, and that is the Supreme Court ruling against the NCAA. In athlete compensation case, we turn to the panel on this. It did come up in the White House briefing today. Jen Psaki, the press secretary, saying, quote, hard work should not be exploited, unquote. And we talk about it with Bloomberg Politics contributor Jeannie Sheehan-Zeno. And we also welcome Bill McGinley, principal at the Vogel Group, former White House Cabinet Secretary in the Trump administration, former general counsel of the RNC. It's great to have both of you. Jeannie, hard work should not be exploited. The press secretary didn't have much more to say on this. Is the is the West Wing trying to get a message together on this ruling? You know, I think it was a it was a unanimous decision. Mm-hmm. I think it's widely supported. I think the Supreme Court obviously made the right call here, and their language was very sharp in many cases and very clear. Um, you know, my concern here, as far as the White House is concerned, to use that word twice, is that this impacts. It's a right. That's the right decision. But the number of athletes actually impacted by it is incredibly low. If you want to talk about things that impact students going to college, let's look at the student loan debt, which is absolutely staggering. That is what the White House and Congress should be focused on. Yes, the student athletes should not have their likeness used without compensation. But we have collectively in 2020, $1.6 trillion, young and older people are carrying in student loan debt. That, to me, is a crisis that impacts so many students that we all know on a day-to-day basis. That's what the White House should be focused on. Well, of course, we know Joe Biden would rather see them go to community college uh, free, of course, as opposed to uh, forgiving loans. Bill, I wonder how you feel about this, having had Justice Gorsuch, Neil Gorsuch, right, that this order leaves the NCAA with considerable leeway to define exactly what is included in education-related compensation. Does that mean nothing changes? Look, I mean, I think, first of all, let me say there's going to be bipartisan agreement. The court reached the right decision, and it did it uh, with a unanimous decision. Does the NCAA now have some wiggle room to, to, to play with this decision a little bit? Yes. But I agree with the tone and tenor of the decision that the court is going to keep them on a short leash and that a lot of these plaintiffs um, who originally filed and others who may be able to join in a future case are probably going to have a pretty friendly forum at the Supreme Court if the NCAA uh, tries to mess around with this too much. Um, I agree this decision uh, impacts a a limited number of student athletes. Um, The NCAA is something that we should all be talking about uh, that's in need of reform. I think that there are a number of issues um, that the NCAA um, has not been getting right. And a lot of these schools, a lot of these coaches, and a lot of other people are making a lot of money um, mm-hmm. off of the efforts of these student-athletes. And I think it's time that we begin to start talking about um, how we bring a little bit more fairness to that system. Well, that's something that's a conversation that's going to go on, I suspect. Jeannie, I'm surprised, actually, that 
the White House even took the question. I mean, why why even get involved in this instead of deflect to a topic like you're talking about? Well, well, that's right. And, you know, they should just take me on there, Joe, and I'll deflect <laughs> for them. No, there you go. no, but I agree with you. And I think Saki did try to, you know, move on from it fairly Indeed. quickly. But but I do agree that I think there's a lot more reform that needs to take place in the, the NCAA. This has been a long time challenge. And your previous guest is right. The differences between female and male athletes, another huge challenge that has to be addressed. So what did Jen Psaki move on to? Of course, it was really infrastructure in and out. There, there was a lot of conversation about this uh, financial regulatory meeting in the Oval Office today, which generated a very bland readout, and it's difficult to tell, having discussed this earlier this hour with White House correspondent Josh Wingrove, very difficult to tell uh, what was accomplished there. I'm guessing infrastructure came up uh, here, uh, and it's something that did uh, come up repeatedly during the briefing. Bill, I'm going to ask you about this. Let's first listen to Press Secretary Jen Psaki, who is clearly looking at the clock. He does not feel the time is unlimited, and he would like, it is not weeks in his view, in terms of moving forward and seeing if there's a bipartisan path forward. All right, Bill, we're looking at days then, not weeks. This is a critical week for infrastructure, the debate on Capitol Hill, and we're told by Saki that President Biden will have senators in the Oval Office that they will meet this week. Are we going to get a deal? Yeah, well, look, I think I think there's a possibility of a deal, but the Republicans are forcing the conversation back onto Harvard infrastructure um, and away from some of the more social uh, infrastructure proposals that were included in the Biden um, original language. But also, uh, one of the things we need to understand is that the federal fiscal year is going to be ending here pretty soon. And the Senate parliamentarian came out and said, in terms of reconciliation, which is that arcane Senate process that allows the Democrats uh, to pass a package uh, with no Republicans, with uh, Vice President Kamala Harris as the tie-breaking vote, mm-hmm. um, that they, they, they only get two bites at the apple and they already used it once. Um, so time is of the essence for the for the Biden White House. I don't think the Republicans are going to go for any infrastructure package that raises taxes. And how do you pay for all of these uh, projects is going to be the sticking point. This bipartisan proposal that's been put out uh, seemed to move in the right direction for some Republicans. But the Democratic caucus is still divided on this. The moderates are, are feeling more toward the, the Republican package or the bipartisan package that was put out. But we've seen uh, Senator Sanders and others on the progressive wing um, put out their own proposals that are far more ambitious and are going to be a non-starter with that bipartisan group. Yeah, watching the Sunday shows was like a ping-pong match, uh, Jeannie. Does does this president really believe that he'll have enough Republicans to make this happen, or are we going through the motions? Uh, To a certain extent, I think he is going through the motions. I think he would like to get a deal. I don't think I am as confident as Bill sounds that that they're going to get to a bipartisan agreement on this. You know, Joe Biden, in my mind, has a real challenge here. He told the world America is back and it can work for the people. And he came back home to an enormous domestic agenda as if he is FDR without the numbers he needs in Congress to push it through. Infrastructure is at the top of that list, as we've been talking about. And yet you're listening, as you said to Bernie Sanders over the weekend, they're talking about a $6 trillion, trillion dollar bill. That's enormous. Hard to imagine that gets through. That's a lot to reconcile, a genie for sure. As we turn to the headline on Bloomberg now, Biden sees flaws in latest infrastructure proposal. We'll take a look at what those flaws are. I'll give you a sneak peek how to pay for it. It's coming up next with the panel on Sound On. I'm Joe Matthew. This is Bloomberg.
This is Bloomberg Sound On on Bloomberg Radio. Thanks for being with us on Bloomberg Radio. I'm Joe Matthew in Washington. We've heard a lot about a bipartisan deal on infrastructure in the Senate. Talked about it every day throughout the last week, waiting for something to happen. $1.2 trillion. The president we hear today sees flaws. And that's where we pick up with Bloomberg Politics contributor Jeannie Sheehan-Zeno and Bill McGinley's with us today, principal at the Vocal Group, former White House Cabinet Secretary in the Trump administration, former general counsel at the RNC. We heard today from the National Economic Council director, Brian Deese, he told CNN, we got sticking points, particularly around how we pay for this. That was echoed in the White House briefing when Jen Psaki was asked about Where's the president on this whole plan? Well, how are we going to pay for it? The president has proposed a range of ways to pay for this package, including ways that would not uh, violate the red lines the Republicans have put forward. One of them is ensuring the highest, wealthiest individuals in this country pay what they're supposed to pay as it relates to taxes, additional tax enforcement, which would raise a great deal more by multiples of what the gas tax would raise. Bill McGinley, I I suspect we'd have something close to a deal right now if it weren't for the actual payment, how to pay for this. And the White House calling it a red line is clearly not prepared to move. How does this deal go anywhere if there's no compromise on that part of the bill? And that's the stumbling block. The the Republicans have come forward and said we need to repurpose. We can repurpose some of the funds that have already been appropriated under the multi trillions of dollars. Uh, that have already been appropriated by Congress to take care of some of this hard infrastructure. I think it's around $579 billion, um, plus some other private investments and other investments to pay for the the bipartisan package. The Democrats, on the other hand, want to use the infrastructure package as a way to increase taxes on who they perceive to be the rich, which will be the people earning more than $400,000 a year, uh, plus raising the corporate rates and others. And so that is going to be the sticking point. And right now, the parties still seem very far apart Um, That is probably going to be the issue that if we don't get an infrastructure package through um, is going to do it, doom it. The the White House is not budging, but I don't see any of the Republicans up on the Hill uh, budging as well on this, because at a time when we're coming out of the pandemic, the last thing we want to do is tax ourselves and try and uh, deflate some of the economic recovery that we're seeing right now. Interesting, Jeannie, to hear from Jen Psaki today. She made the point that if we simply collected the money that was being taxed, at least on paper, from America's wealthiest individuals, the millionaires and billionaires, not add new taxes, but enforce the tax laws on the book, that would generate more money than a gas tax. That's right. To a certain extent, listening to her today, I felt like we were listening to some of the Democratic primary debates because those were some of the points that you would hear during those kind of debates. And, you know, the the point of the pay for this has always been the sticking point or not always. But since in the modern era, we've tried to get an infrastructure bill. This is the same thing that happened and doomed the bill during the Trump administration was how do you pay for it? You know, we've talked a lot about the size of the, you know, the size and scope of the bill. But the pay for is always the sticking point. And at this point, to hear Jen Psaki say it's a non-starter and to hear Mitch McConnell say user fees are the way to go. Well, Mm -hmm. there's no sort of melding those two to get enough money to reach even the lowest number that some of these pay fors and bills are talking about. 
Oh, look, nothing says we get a bill, right? People are walking around assuming that something's going to happen here, and it might be around a trillion dollars, and there might be two or three packages uh, for that matter, Bill. But who says we end up with legislation and a deal now or in September? Yeah, I think it's. I, I think that the parties are so far apart. And the other, the other point I would say is that whenever you hear a Democratic White House say we're going to muscle up the IRS uh, to collect more taxes, every conservative out there starts thinking about when the IRS went after conservative nonprofit organizations and some of the scandals that we've had in the past on that. So there's a lot of political baggage that comes with trying to muscle up the IRS to collect more taxes, uh, because Republicans are just inherently going to think that there's going to be disparate treatment. I, I think that the, the parties are very far apart. Uh, the pay-fors are going to be the sticking point, and this is something that I think we may not get through legislation. One point worth making, Joe, is that you know the Department of Transportation already hands out a lot of grants to state and local governments um, to do road repairs and other things. Um, and so there is money going out the door for infrastructure right now. It's just the large-scale projects that we all know we need to repair the bridges, roads, water infrastructure, rural broadband, et cetera, yeah. um, that we really need to start tackling now because it's going to be a multi-year project. We're joined on Bloomberg Sound On by Jeannie Sheehan Zeno and Bill McGinley making up our political panel today. I can't have this conversation about infrastructure or any level of spending like that or capital spending on our own improvements without talking about the state of the economy. And we still have big question marks as we prepare to hear from the Fed chair tomorrow, big question marks about growth about what level of growth we'll see going through the rest of this year and what that will mean for interest rates, because all this is going to have an impact on how much money we have left over. We got a little bit of an advance on what we're going to hear from Jay Powell, who says inflation picked up but should move back towards the bank's 2% target once supply imbalances resolve. He's going to be talking about that uh, in testimony before the House Select Subcommittee on the coronavirus crisis tomorrow. We heard as well today from Steve Mnuchin. He spoke exclusively with David Weston on balance of power and made very clear that he sees things heating up even more than the Fed might suggest right now. The Fed models, the Treasury models, economic models really are not very good at predicting, given the vast amount of fiscal and monetary response we had over the last year. So I I think this is something that needs to be watched very carefully. And I, I do think the markets are underestimating this risk. That that got my attention. The markets are underestimating the risk. But we'll move on back in, 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 into the fall, say. If this isn't done by then, uh, Jeannie, and we see a big uptick in inflation, we start seeing maybe some tapering and more talk about tightening interest rates, does that jeopardize a deal later in the year? It absolutely does. You know, my view has long been if they don't get this done as early as possible, meaning probably, you know, in the next month or two, it becomes that much harder to do. Not only do you have the economic aspects of it, and you're absolutely right to point to those, you also have people leaving, going back to their districts, and in the House, they're going to be focused in about a third of the Senate on, guess what, the midterm election of twenty of, of 2022. Yeah. So you want to have them talk about doing something this this big, particularly if the economy starts to show signs of being in jeopardy, it, it's almost impossible to think they could get the kind of spending that Democrats are throwing around at this point. So, Bill McGinley, we get back to days, not weeks in this case, then. Could there be uh, something hammered out this week? Or are you watching all of the items that I just mentioned with some level of concern? Uh, I'm watching the items you're watching with concern. 
I think it's um, less likely than not that we're going to get any sort of package done uh, in the next couple of days or weeks. Um, I think the parties are way too far apart. And the economic uh, uh, indicators that you just discussed, I think, are also going to contribute to the to the gap that exists between the parties. I think people are watching this economic recovery um, and whether it's going to stall or not due to inflation, uh, higher interest rates or any of the other uh, indicators that you mentioned um, with some uh, skeptical concern. Um, but I really hope that, uh, you know, the, the nation does need some infrastructure reform. We need to get some of this stuff done. Um, it's the type of return on investment I think a lot of us had hoped when we were passing uh, some of these large pack- packages over the past year uh, to help with coronavirus. So, yeah. It sure seems like good politics. Everybody wants an infrastructure deal, but boy, when you start talking about the details. Uh, Jeannie, what's the what's the good move for Joe Biden right now? We understand he'll be hosting some senators. I suspect one of them might be named Manchin uh, at the White House later this week. I suspect the leadership might be involved in that. Or is it time for something more dramatic? The yeah. motorcade goes up to the hill. We're, we're going to buttonhole people. We're not leaving until we have a deal. Yeah, count those votes. And nobody knows how to do this better than Joe Biden. But I suspect you're right. He'll probably have a Joe Manchin up there, probably a Kristen Cinema, try to move this thing forward. But I really do think that, you know, Joe Biden sees the calendar here. Because let's not forget, for Joe Biden, this is his legacy. This next few weeks, in my mind, is his legacy. He wants to go big. For Democrats, they fear... As they move forward, they're not going to be able to go big. So they're all seeing this as this is their moment. So my my I suspect what they will do is we're going to see a tightening of Democrats trying to come together and try to see if they can get something through on reconciliation. Mm-hmm. As Bill was mentioning, a lot of that depends on, you know, if they're able to get approval to move something forward on reconciliation, because y- you never know. But. If they can, I think that is their one way to get something. But it's not going to be $6 trillion that, that uh, Bernie Sanders is talking about. Bill, in our remaining minute here, should Joe Biden go to the Hill, grab the Treasury Secretary, get in the, get in the limousine, and, and make something happen? As a former senior White House official, I would never put the president in that position unless he's already got the deal struck. I think that you're going to continue to see groups of senators coming over to the White House in an effort to try and negotiate some sort of plan. Uh, if there's any hope. But I would not expect to see Joe Biden, President Biden, to get in the motorcade to go up to Capitol Hill unless they already know that they have the deal struck on a bipartisan basis. Well, it's going to be an interesting couple of days here with meetings in the offing. Bill McGinley, principal at the Vogel Group, former White House cabinet secretary in the Trump administration, former general counsel at the RNC. Great insights, Bill. Jeannie Sheehan Zeno, Bloomberg politics contributor. As well, great to have you back with us, Jeannie. I'm Joe Matthew in Washington. This is Bloomberg Sound On. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.